This is Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. Here we explore the taboo, less obvious, and paradoxical aspects of society. Questions you think but don't ask. Questions that need nuanced answers, not just Google results. These are the conversations you thought you would never get to have. And the goal? To inspire curiosity over judgment. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Before we get into it, I want to ask a favor. Could you pause this real quick and check to see if you follow the show on whatever podcast app you're listening on? Thank you so very much. Also, if you're listening on Google Podcasts, the app will be no longer as of March 2024. You can import all of your favorites on YouTube Music or try out a new app. Okay, so today's episode is a topic about a part of society that you have never considered as the source of a feeling we have all had. That feeling is the one of not doing enough with our lives. You know, not living up to the challenge issued at our graduation's commencement speech. And the cause? Well, it's the idea behind the commencement speech. In this conversation, you'll notice that my guest and I couldn't address the overlooked heroes of our society who are being good without making a splashy impact without addressing the unnoticed habits that drive ordinary people to meddle and enforce morality and pathologically at times help others who aren't asking for it. So since we've all no doubt committed some of these cardinal sins, I'd love for you to reflect on the societal drivers as well as the internal motives that cause us to be Sally do good and that cause us to feel bad about minding our own business, taking care of our family and close friends, doing a good job at work and just, you know, being a good neighbor. In true philosopher form, you'll notice that my guest leaves you with a lot to think about and had many helpful, what I call filter questions, to apply to situations we historically have seen as just very black and white. If you end up liking this episode, you'll also like the one I did with the same guest about virtue signaling. That's episode 136. All right, friends, keep it curious. Shoot for the moon and land among the stars. This is the advice we all heard at our school graduations and every business conference ever. It's the kind of speech that has inspired goal posters and fueled the pursuit of grand-scale legacy with, as one author puts it, excited do-gooders surveying the moral landscape for problems to fix. My next guest is that author. He's an associate professor and philosopher at Bowling Green University who believes that living a quiet life is not an underachieving consolation prize. Today, he's going to take us on a nuanced discussion to explore why being a busybody comes at a cost and how putting down roots is good for everyone as we ask the question, is it okay to mind your own business? Returning guest, champion for the ordinary, your friendly neighborhood philosopher, Dr. Brandon Wormke. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Meredith. I should have added, and prolific book writer, because I swear every time I turn around, you have written or are in the middle of writing another book. Well, I'm glad it feels that way. It, it, it For you, it feels that way for me too. But, you know, you got to keep food on the table. So This is true. This last book I really enjoyed, but I'm, I think my listeners may be torn because I can't I can't figure out if they would feel either relieved or confused at the prospect of not being obligated to make big change in the world. The confused might wonder, 
you know, why working to make the world a better place is a bad thing. So maybe we should start there. Why would wanting to work to make the world better be potentially bad? So the the book is called Why It's Okay to Mind Your Own Business. And the first half is devoted to the dangers of minding other people's. And we started thinking about, my, my co-author and I started thinking about this you know, we're we're both professors and every semester or so we have to sit and listen to commencement speeches. And I'm sure you or many of your <laughs> is, listeners wait, is this when you wrote the book? Like you're you're in the bleachers like <laughs> making notes. I actually do don't tell the president of my university or my dean, but Your I do. Secret, secret is safe with us. I do yeah. bring a book with me. Those things are long, you know, and I, I bring a book and secretly read it like in the second row. Like all the parents are like probably watching. So we so we go to these commencement speeches and, you know, if you've been to one, you've been to a dozen. And there's a, there's a genre of commencement speech that tells young people to get out there make a name for themselves, upset the status quo, start a revolution, do big things. And we call this commencement speech morality. And it tells young people, the world is a buffet of problems to solve. And you all care deeply and you're brilliant and you're intelligent. And you carry the spark of Zeus with you. And so get out there and <laughs> make a name for yourself and do big things. And you know, I'm sure a lot of young people take that message to heart. It's not one they only hear at commencement. They hear it from their high school teachers and their parents and, you know, Instagram influencers. And so and it's not just a message that young people hear. I mean, people my age hear it, too, that if you're sort of not out there involved in politics, canvassing door to door, doing big things, your life is not all that meaningful. You're not reaching your potential. I think this message is not great. I think that a lot of young people have anxiety and feel a lot of pressure to do big things. And one of the things we argue in the book is that actually when you set out with a commencement speech morality mindset, you can actually do a lot of damage. In the second half of the book, we, we defend what we call ordinary morality, which is not the view from the podium. It's the view of life, you know, once commencement speeches and graduations are over, you return to your backyard garden or your t-ball field or, you know, your your workplace. And, and we defend a quiet life of putting down roots, creating a good home and spending time in solitude. And so the message of the book is, you know, it's for stay-at-home moms. It's for young people who just want to put down roots and have children and have a job and we volunteer at the Kiwanis Club, and and we think those people, even though most people do live like that, their lives are not defended. Their 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 life choices are not seen as morally praiseworthy, and we think that's a mistake. Well, it's not just the commencement speeches that are encouraging this, right? Do you remember the TV show What Would You Do? No, tell me about it. Okay, you have to look it up. Okay. It was a hidden camera show that examined how people oh, behaved yeah. in situations where they either had to act or mind their own business. So right. you had a lot of actors being hired who basically conducted social experiments and then they filmed them. And the underlying vibe was like, you should, if you see something, say something like you should do something. Yeah. You know, if you see a mother berating her child in public, you should you should say something. And that was kind of like the overall message of it. But in your book, you described 
I want to say three or four different types of (laughs) do-gooders that actually do harm. Do you mind kind of explaining those different types for us so we can kind of paint for ourselves a picture of what harm may look like? Sure. So here's one way to not mind your business, and that is by being what we call a moralizer. And uh, most people have heard this term, don't be a moralizer. She's a moralizer. He's a he's a huge moralizer. So a moralizer is just someone who oversteps the boundaries of moral enforcement. So morality is just, you know, the rules of good and, you know, good and bad, right and wrong. It's very important to be moral. It's very important to encourage people to be good and to enforce morality. And we enforce morality by blaming them, intervening in their lives when they're about to do something wrong. And that's a very important thing to do. However, it's possible to overstep your legitimate sort of limits as an enforcer of morality. So you think it like, you know, we're all sort of, you know, moral police officers, but we all have like legitimate limits to our authority. What moralizers do is they overstep the bounds. So let me give you a few examples of moralizers. Um, So you can imagine someone, you know, on Facebook or whatever is talking about a fundraiser and I might intervene and say, oh, you know, this, yeah, this is a great fundraiser, but you really should be, you know, attempting to solve this problem in this far flung part of the world. This is really what's important. Or, you know, at a, at a work function, someone might introduce their spouse as their wife. And I say, oh, how dare you? Why are you reifying heteronormativity? You know, I might like at the dinner table, keep going on and on about a seven part documentary about factory farming. So look, people are pushy about lots of things. People are pushy about their, their favorite politician or their favorite multi-level marketing scheme. Moralizers are pushy about morality. They're like the salesperson who never stops pitching. And look, it's good to enforce morality. It's not good to go around your entire life constantly enforcing what you think are the right moral rules. One reason of that is that moralizers allow their simplistic moral slogans, their simplistic moral views to dominate all other kinds of considerations. One common example is rent control. Rent control is, is a legally set limit on what landlords can charge for rent. Now, the vast majority of economists tell us that rent control laws actually reduce the quantity and quality of housing. So if you really care about poor people, you should be against rent control. However, a lot of moralizers will say things like housing is a human right and therefore we should have rent control. So what they're doing is they're sort of like interjecting their favorite moral slogans or claims and saying this is a conversation stopper. This ends all debate. And so moralizing actually makes it hard to make good practical decisions. Now, the point here is not that morality has no role to play. Of course, it has a role to play. The point is that what moralizers do is they overstep the bounds as an enforcer of morality and say, my way is the highway and my moral claim settles all of these issues. So one problem of moralizing is it just makes it harder to make good decisions. So that's that's one way to not mind your own business is go around nitpicking, nitpicking people's behavior, intervening to, you know, to, to make sure they understand that you're on the side of angels. Another way to not mind your own business, and I'll, I'll just mention one more, is, is by being a busybody. And um, ancient philosophers, Plato, Epictetus, Theophrastus, even, you know, St. Paul in the New Testament condemns being a busybody. And, and I think 
everyone like knows what this means. They have a mother-in-law or a neighbor or a coworker who's a busybody. A busybody is just someone who oversteps the legitimate boundaries of helping. So whereas moralizing, where moralizers overstep the boundaries of enforcing morality, busybodies are too eager to help. If you go to the gym, there's like the guy who goes around and tries to help everyone with their weightlifting form. You're walking through the park and you hear, you know, <laughs> a, a retired couple talking about their investments and you say, oh, excuse me, you know, actually I had this can't miss like cryptocurrency scheme that you should get involved with. Or you could stop someone at the bus stop and, you know, this t explain to this guy he's not using the right shampoo for his hair type. I mean, a lot of busybodies see the world as a receptacle of people who need their help. People with a messiah complex, for example, go around trying to do this. And so there's obviously lots of reasons why you might not want to do this. One is that you just might not know enough about someone's life or how much they need your help. You might be misinformed about what, what would actually be good for them. But also, and this leads us to this last chapter, I mean, busybodies often mean well, but, but meaning well is no guarantee for helping people. I mean, this is something that like, as a philosophy professor, if I could like imprint on everyone's brain, like one thing to learn, it's that like... Good intentions do not equate to good outcomes. So all that to say, one way to not mind your own business is by being a moralizer. Another way is not is by being a busybody. And we should be reticent to involve ourselves in other people's lives. You mentioned Messiah complex. Is that along the same lines of what you described in your book as pathologic altruism, which as a sidebar is like my new favorite combination of words. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I just love it. In our last episode we did about virtue signaling, you know, we talked about obnoxious hashtags and why do people do it? I for real feel like hashtag altru pathologic altruism yeah. <laughs> is like on the horizon because it is really fun to say. So it could take a dark turn, but I, I want to know how it fits into the either it's moralizing or is it busybody? Where does it fit? What does it look like? Yeah. So pathological altruism is a term that's been used in the last 15 to 20 years by psychologists, actually. It's not something that we came up with, unfortunately, because it is a great term. So, well, first of all, what is altruism? Altruism fundamentally is just helping others at some cost to yourself. You mow your neighbor's lawn when they're out of town, you do it for free. That's an altruistic act. You're taking an hour out of your day. You're using calories to help this person out. And we should all want to be helpful. We should all try to help people when we can. But the idea behind pathological altruism is that we can take this too far. And at the detriment of our own mental health or our physical health and well-being, at the detriment to of people that we are responsible for, like our children or our parents or our siblings, we can seek to help people in a way that's actually undermining of our own either moral standing, so we're actually you know defaulting on our moral obligations to others, or we're actively harming ourselves by being miserable. There's a great book called Strangers Drowning that talks, it's got all these stories about like, these people who have basically reduce their lives to sort of misery in an attempt to help other people. And I think, so what's the connection with busybodies? Lots of us are busybodies once in a while. We don't really, you know, we're not maybe minding our business. We kind of make mistakes, kind of insert ourselves into people's lives. 
But I suspect you and I both know, and I, you know, when I was writing this, writing this chapter with my co-author, I, I was thinking of one particular person and like trying to get inside their head. Like I know this guy who's a philosophy professor. I won't, I'm not going to mention his name. They're, they're, he's not watching either. He doesn't like me. So he's not going to watch this. But uh, he I, might be hate watching. He I could be hate watching. He could be hate watching. Yeah, that's true. If he is, how's it going, man? So, you know, people with Messiah complexes think they're incredibly important, that people like really need their help. And they're constantly going on about how mis- I mean, how hard it is and just really doing the work. You know, they're really like sacrificing their sleep and their health to help other people. And these people really need me. And I think a lot of people with this kind of attitude do end up being pathological altruists. So it's not merely that by being a busybody, we hurt other people. Often we do. We often also hurt ourselves. And so part of the point of this chapter on meaning well and being a busybody is that, you know, it's not just in the interest of others that you mind your own business. It's good for you to mind your own business. The problem is a lot of pathological altruists altruists just turn themselves into, you know, tools, vehicles of serving other people. And as important as that is, we are not here to simply be useful. We're here to be lovable. And the question is, how can I balance my own development, becoming a good person, taking care of myself with my obligations to help others. That flies right in the face of every missionary I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You know, they, so, they literally say, like, I am here to be a tool yeah. of God's hand and go to these other nations and preach the gospel. And, and you know, some, some of them, missionary experiences very widely, but yeah. in some cases, it, they do have certain sacrifices that they make where it could go into this pathological altruism where it is hurting themselves and some would argue hurting the people that they are air quote serving. Yeah. So yeah, love your take on that one. Yeah, I think, I think you and I both grow up, both grew up with religious church culture and there is this difficult question about whether missionaries, so missionaries are just people who like, they have a divine mission to bring the good news of 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 their faith to others who've not heard it and accepted it. And I, there's this interesting question. So like, you know, so on the one hand, so St. Paul in First Thessalonians, those of you who are like, got your Bibles handy, you know, and chapter. Oh, I chap- mean, some of my audience, they already know <laughs> That's which good. chapter verse you're They're about better to than me. Quote. So <laughs> yeah, chap- I think it's chapter four, first Thessalonians. St. Saint- Paul says, live a quiet life and mind your own business. He says that, mind your own business. And yet he's also going around the Mediterranean <laughs> and like, you know, he's being imprisoned for preaching the gospel. He's going into synagogues and preaching and eventually getting kicked out. So on the one hand, there's this like, mind your own business sort of mentality. There's this other mentality that's sort of like, get out there and like share the good news. And, you know, Jesus in Matthew 10 says, he tells his disciples like two by two to go out and like start preaching. But he does say, if if a city or a town doesn't welcome you, like leave. Like if they don't welcome you, don't force yourself. Don't be an unwelcome guest. And so I think this is like something, someone who's thought harder about this and smarter than I should have something to say about this. Like, how do you balance on the one hand, like if you think you have a, and it doesn't need to be a divine mission. It could just be a vocation. Like you want to go build wells in Bangladesh or something. Like how do you balance that on the one hand, wanting to help and wanting to bring people something good with 
maintaining a respectful distance and allowing people to be autonomous and free. I think that's that's a difficult question. One that we don't talk about in the book, to be honest with you. Well, I I would argue that you did because you actually did talk about a well. Do you remember giving oh, the yeah. well example? <laughs> yeah. So we give this example in the book of if I see if I can remember the details. When people write books, they like try to immediately forget it because they're sick of working on it. But so, so there's this guy in the '90s who I, I can't remember his name. He was like a tech investor. He wanted to help people build wells in some rural part of Africa. I don't remember the exact place, but and so the idea here's the idea of how to build a well. So the problem is, you know, women typically have to walk a long way to get to the well. And they pump the water by hand. It's not fun. It's painful. It takes a long time to carry the water back. Okay, so this guy like saw this idea for what was called a and trademarked as the play pump. Okay, it's called the play pump, and it's That's a mer- real it's name. a merry go round. <laughs> it's a mer- so for just to be clear, it's a merry go round. Okay, right. and the idea of the merry go round is like if you've all been on a merry go round, like you jump on the merry go round and you push it and it spins around. Okay, so what he did was turned a mer- turned like the water pump into a merry go round. So you'd get on the merry go round, you'd push it, you know, push your kids on it, and then it would like pump water. Okay, and you know the more the kids played on it, right, they get more water and so on. That was supposed to be the idea. Now, it turned out after these like millions and millions of dollars were spent buying these and testing them and putting them in these poor areas, that actually ended up being a disaster because if you've been on a merry-go-round, there's a fun part and a boring part. The fun part is like when you're actually on the merry-go-round spinning around, that's the fun part. The boring part is pushing it. But that's the part that like, you know, that pumps the water and, you know, kids were getting sick and like getting injured on these things. And so it ended up being a bit of a like a failure. And so this is one of those things that we talk about in the book that good intentions don't ensure good outcomes. I mean, if you think really hard about life, you know, simply meaning well doesn't guarantee good outcomes. Yeah. yeah. And it ended up with like child labor, like they were paying kids to to do the work. And I thought, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah. They ended up paying kids and uh, it was a bit of a mess. Yeah. But, you it know, it was a bit of a mess. A lot of humanitarian intervention, a lot of public policy is full of examples of well intentioned people whose hearts are in the right place end up doing more harm than good. And they're not necessarily to be blamed for these outcomes, but I think it is. It's a good reminder that the world is complex and there's a lot we don't know. And so that trying to create solutions to big problems is very difficult. So how are you supposed to know when intervening is the right thing to do and when minding your own business is the right thing to do? Because I'll give one example. Let's say you discover that your coworker's husband is cheating on her, right? So do you mind your own business or do you intervene? Yeah. Yeah, this is hard. So first of all, I don't think there's any like hard and fast rule about when you should intervene and either help people or intervene and enforce morality and blame people and call people out. Any person who claims they have the answer to that question in every situation is probably lying to you or or misinformed. So morality is extremely complex. And I think these things often vary culture to culture. So what might be appropriate for a mother-in-law to do and involve herself in one's life in 
in the U.S. might be different in other parts of the world. And so we have to be aware of that. But here are just a few questions. So when you're thinking about like intervening in someone else's life, like one question you can ask is, is this really that important? Often it's not. So one of the examples we give in the book is you're walking by a colleague who's in his office late at night. And he's on the phone with his wife and he's, you know, he's like, ah, oh, I got a lot of grading to do. It's so much work. And you know that he's just having like a, you know, a quiet moment to himself away from the kids. So he's lying to his wife. So, you know, he's in the wrong, you know, he's lying to his wife, you know, lying is wrong, but it would probably be inappropriate for you to like, you know, it, like, Hey man, stop lying to your wife or like call her up and be like, Oh, just so you know, your husband was lying to you the other night. That's probably not that important. And so it's just not worth intervening. You might ask yourself, is this a morally complex situation? We have a tendency to think that like morality is very simple and cut and dry. There's lots of competing values that are at stake in morality. So freedom and order and equality and justice. These are all often sort of warring against one another. And it's hard to know what the right answer is. We might ask ourselves, am I sure I'm seeing the answer clearly? So even if there is a clear answer, it may be that we don't often see it. Maybe our own moral vision is cloudy and we just aren't well equipped to understand what the right thing to do is. We might ask ourselves, would I be a hypocrite for involving myself? So one of the ways that you might not have the standing to involve, to, you know, blame someone or involve someone, you know, involve yourself in their lives is if you'd be a hypocrite. So Suppose I'm a chain smoker and I love smoke and I just love it. Just love waking up every day. And I smoke like a chimney and I have no intention to stop. And I see my neighbor and he's smoking and I say, hey, man, cut it out. Doing it. It's a dirty habit you've got there. You know, that seems like hypocritical for me to do that. And that's something or something icky about that, morally icky about that. We might ask ourselves, is, is there someone else better suited to intervene? Give this example about your friend's husband is cheating on her. I mean, maybe you're her best friend. Maybe you are the best person to intervene. But if you're just an acquaintance, maybe you aren't the best person to intervene. Maybe you don't know the details of their relationship. And so it's none of your business. Maybe you might go to someone who's closer to her and say, hey, I had this concern. Maybe, maybe you're a better person to talk to her than I. And finally, you know, I think one good question to ask ourselves is, is this a part of morality that should be socially enforced at all? There are some parts of morality that you might think it's no one's business. So suppose I spend all my Saturday afternoon on the couch eating a bowl of flaming Hot Cheetos, watching all of, you know, the Die Hard movies back to back or something like that. It's probably a waste of my afternoon. It's unclear that it's anyone's job to intervene. Maybe my closest friends, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent. But like, even then, it's not clear they have any right to intervene and say, hey, you, you have a duty to self-improvement. You have a duty to be, you know, use your time wisely and you need to get your act together. And that's not sure that anyone has that right to enforce morality. And so all those questions are ones we can ask. I mean, I don't think that there's, again, any cut and dried, obvious checklist of when to intervene. I think most of these things require a considerable amount of wisdom. So not a formula per right. se, but I think there's, I think you've described some filters. <laughs> we can filter right. our own urges to intervene through kind of those questions, which I think is really good. When we think about minding our own business, we think about like neighbors who don't talk to one another 
would-be do-gooders who look the other way, like I mentioned in the What Would You Do show, right? And so we really think of it as like a boring existence at best and looking away from injustices <laughs> when you could help at worst. But in your book, you talk about yeah. how living a quiet and ordinary life can be noble. And I was like, whoa, he used the word noble. So can you can you share how an ordinary existence can be noble? The second half of the book is is the positive part. And it's a defense of living an ordinary life, or what we call ordinary anyway, which is, it has three parts. One is putting down roots, so being rooted at a place. Another way is to create a good home. And finally, to spend time and considerable time in solitude. Now, not all of us as an introvert. Can live lives I will tell like, you, I loved that one. I loved the. Oh wait, well, I can spend considerable time. I'm, I'm serious because I feel so yeah. guilty sometimes, or I feel behind, or part of me feels like I'm missing out, or I'm not doing entrepreneurship right because I will fall apart if I do not have a certain amount of recharging time totally alone. And you know, even some of my closer friends are like, "I don't understand. You don't." You don't want to do X, Y, Z? I'm like, no, I don't. I just want to sit outside and, and read a book or like play with my plants <laughs> and do yeah. something like that. Yeah, I mean. So every and, introvert and, everywhere and, is like really excited. So the extent to which how much, you know, solitude is good for you, it might depend on your personality, you know, whether you are an introvert, for example. But I think solitude is good for everyone, at least to some degree. And, and one reason that we talk about in the book is just because it's a, it's a, it's the best place to get rest. Rest is not good just so that you can get back out there and do more solving of the world's problems. Rest is good in and of itself. Mental and physical health are good things in themselves. It's not like there's no good in the world that's accruing to you or to anyone simply because you're taking time to rest and spend time in solitude. There's just lots of other things that you that you can only do in solitude. Develop your talents, you know. Think about Michael Phelps, like when I was writing this chapter, like, you know, that to the world-class swimmer, Katie Ledecky, these world-class athletes that spend hundreds and hundreds of hours like by themselves in the pool. And I think, are they wasting their lives? No, they're they're becoming excellent at something. So all that to say, I mean, I, I Solitude is the last chapter in the book. It's like the easiest way to mind your own business because you're literally just by yourself. Um, uh, but it's important. It's important, you know, also to have some distance from your society, some some critical distance to be able to assess like the dominant moral and social norms of society. When you're constantly around people, it's easy to just take those on and accept them. Like, oh, I'm just on TikTok all the time. I'm at parties all the time. People are watching me. I'm watching people. It's easy to just like imbibe all of what culture offers you and just accept it. But I think one thing solitude does as well is it gives us some critical distance to say, no, no, actually, that's not good. So by, in this case, by saying it's noble, it would because, be because the outcomes are more thought through, like if there are any outcomes, like in the examples that you gave, you know, of being truly alone, not alone and on your phone, 
you're not participating in what ends up being the memetics of social networking. Like (laughs) you're not doing something because someone else is doing it. You're not Botoxing because she's Botoxing. You're really sitting with yourself and, you know, this is starting to sound really Buddhist, but do you know what I mean? Like, like, is that what you mean by noble in the case of spending time in solitude? Is that why noble just seems like such a big word that I'm like, whoa, it's noble to live an ordinary life. You know, I just want to make sure I'm on the right track. Yeah. Here's a way to think about what it means for life to be noble. Are, are people going to be glad that you were here? Are you spending your, your life in a way that's morally admirable? And what we're doing in the second half of the book is trying to show people that aren't out there making a name for themselves on a stage, social media influencers. You can have an honorable, noble, generous life, a life that's worth being proud of by putting down roots, creating good home and living in solitude. I, there, there's this idea that like to to be noble, to be worthwhile, to have a life worth living, that you have to do big things, to found a company or to be an innovator or a investor or save the world. But society also needs people who maintain the good things around us, our habitats, our, our literal environments, our, our institutions, things like public libraries and roads and facades of buildings. I mean, this is all sounds very silly to talk about, like, but like, these are things that are that matter. Like these are things that make life worth living. And when you live in a you know a society that's peaceful and orderly, like these are things that matter. Not everyone can be a head of an NGO or you know giving TED talks all the time. Like people, like society needs people who are maintainers. And one of the benefits and one of the reasons why a life of minding your own business is noble is because you can be a maintainer. You can be one of these people who preserves the good things around you. And this is something we stress in the chapter on rootedness. Being rooted means attaching yourself to a place, enjoying the benefits of that place, but also giving back, you know, just like roots, you know, literal plant roots prevent soil erosion. People, when they're rooted, can prevent a kind of social erosion and they can give back to their community. So it's So, you know, the title of the book is not why it's okay to be selfish or why it's okay to be a rugged individualist. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is that there are ways of involving yourself, say, for example, in your local community or even just creating a good home where you can show hospitality, raise virtuous, happy, loving children. These are all things that are incredibly important, but you will never hear them in a commencement speech. And it's not because people don't think those things are important, but um, I think those things are forgotten, and we need to be reminded of things that are that that do good, even though they may not save the world. Hey, curiositors! Just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If you're new here, you may be surprised to know that the beautiful backdrop of my show is not a virtual screen. It's a real place that you can really rent inside of the Pensacola Museum of History. The exhibit space is called Trader John's. It's an old bar in Pensacola whose owner was just as eclectic as this town. And it's perfect for birthdays, work events, award ceremonies, retirement parties, family reunions. So don't pick another boring venue space for your next event. Give the Pensacola Historic Trust your business and make your event super memorable. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. 
The weather is cooling down here in the southern U.S., and that means it's fire ant season. For those of you not from the south, fire ants are about as pleasant as they sound, and their bites pus up into an itchy red mess that takes forever to heal. I recommend Insect for pest management because I've been using their mosquito service since 2019, and I love that their work is guaranteed. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insec a call. It's E-N-S-E-C dot net. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. Do you think that part of the reason why we don't promote these types of ways of living is because it doesn't support uh, the collegiate system? Like it doesn't support take out the student loan and go to school because in order to be a good community member and live a quiet life, you're going to need to have advanced calculus. (laughs) Right. So that's that's an excellent question. If you think about who commencement speakers typically are, they tend to be people that come from, for lack of a better term, we can call the social elite. They're entrepreneurs, they're politicians, they're journalists, they're they're movers and shakers of some sort. You know, you don't just like have Joe Schmo from the local UAW come give a commencement speech. Like like that would be very strange. And so if you think about what a commencement speech is, how it functions and what the messages are, one way to think about it is it's a message from the social elite to aspiring young people who want to be a part of the social elite. And it's a message of telling them what kind of life is successful. But that's a very narrow view of what a successful life is. And so John Stuart Mill called these people one-eyed men. They, they, you know, they see one thing very clearly, right? They see, you know, one aspect of life very clearly uh, to, to the detriment of all these other things that are also valuable. And so, you know, look, some people might might push back and say, look, it's good for these messages to go out. It inspires young people. It, it helps them, you know, think about their lives in ways they might not otherwise. And that that could be true. But what I think is the problem is that many young people are led to believe their lives are somehow suboptimal or a failure if they're not living up to commencement speech morality. And that's the kind of message that I think is unfortunate. Mm, yeah, it really is. It's because it it's not just like a <laughs> it's not just a new thing. I mean, look at look at every community. Their older population, they are in the, you know, final round of their lives. And what do many of them try to do? They they are like on city councils, like they they suddenly have a grasping for leaving a legacy, even if it's just simply arguing with a bunch of other people, not really getting anything done. Like, I I feel like this is, you know, there's a temptation to think, oh, wow, this is like a millennial problem, right? (laughs) Like These poor millennials have been victimized by these commencement speeches that have put pressure on them to really be movers and shakers. But I I see the impact in in older adults and older generations as well. And if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like what you're saying is don't 
purposely veer away from wanting to make a difference if that's what you want to do. But A, be thoughtful about it. Don't just throw up all over <laughs> whatever problem it is you think that you're about to fix. And B, it, it also means that there's this underdog segment of the population that is also maintaining and growing a legacy, but in a different and less public way. Yeah. Yeah, I you're absolutely right. It's not just young people. So commitment to speech morality is not something only preached or taken up by young people. I so a few months ago, so I'm currently in Ohio, but I'm spending my sabbatical in Boulder, Colorado, and a few months ago, right like during the election time in November, I left a bagel shop and saw two women sitting at a table and they were like they spent hours going through all the political candidates, like the, all the local ca- like dog catcher. They're like, oh, but you know, I don't think the dog catcher's college degree is and the thing that I care about. You know, like really. Now, I guess if you're going to vote, like that's what you prefer, someone to be well, well educated about the candidates. But I, you know, I I walked by and I and I said, you know, I said, oh, you guys, you guys are working hard here, you know. And she's like. Yeah, I hope you're getting out to vote, you know, and I said, I'm probably not going to vote. And they were aghast, you know, I sometimes vote. I don't always vote. I'm bad. I'm bad about voting or maybe good. Depends on who you ask. You know what? I'm I'm glad that you admit that, though, because you know how I like to obviously cover taboo topics, right? (laughs) Like that is a taboo topic of, you know, why sometimes people don't vote and is that okay? And, and all exploring that. So it's like something people never really admit. So I appreciate you. Appreciate your, your confession. Well, I mean, look, I think people want to vote, whatever, do your thing. That's what, you know, that's what you enjoy. That's what you feel like your duty is. Go for it. But I often wonder to, you know, here's the problem with voting to be a really informed voter. And most people really aren't, to be honest with you, if you, but to be a really informed voter, you have to spend a lot of time studying the issues and not just the candidates, but like the economics of minimum wage law or the economics of housing zoning or whatever, like to un- really understand all the ins and outs. And I just think like, you know, couldn't that time be better spent volunteering for big brothers, big sisters, like teaching a young woman how to, you know, order at a restaurant, someone without a dad, te- teaching him how to shake a hand and how to fish and how to treat women like the like you know those things seem to me like better uses of time than you know three hours spent researching your local dog catcher and that's a hobby horse i have i mean i i don't expect everyone to agree with that obviously but it does raise the following question like if you if you really were committed to doing the most good if you really wanted to be an efficient altruist what would you spend your time doing? And my suggestion is that for a lot of people, it would be doing things like putting down roots, creating a good home, spending time in solitude. Last question. How would you suggest people practice curiosity while also practicing ordinary morality in minding their own business? Curiosity is tough. And this used to be a, a vice. The ancient and some medieval philosophers and theologians thought of curiosity as something bad, something to be wary of. Now, I have to clarify, there, there's a kind of curiosity which is totally innocent, which is just a desire to learn and a desire to know things. But the vice of curiosity 
curiositas, the the Latin word for it. It was it was it referred to seeking knowledge in a bad way or knowledge that was gained or pursued poorly. And there's and there's two ways that you might be badly curious. One is that if your motivation is bad. So if you want to get a degree or learn something because you're prideful, you want people to see how smart you are or be impressed by your knowledge of all these things. That would be a kind of vicious curiosity. Or or if your goals are bad. So you know, you want to learn things about your neighbor so that you can blackmail him or criticize him or something. That would be a kind of bad curiosity. The point is that it has to be channeled. So you might, you know, I can mind my own business and be curious if I sort of keep my curiosity within the guardrail. So what is my goal with my curiosity? What do, what do I want to do with this? What's my What's my motivation? Am I trying to show off? Am I trying to hurt someone with this? And furthermore, what am I sacrificing? So life is full of trade-offs. So every time you learn something or pursue knowledge, you have to give up something else. You have to give up time spent doing something else. So like, you know, I could be really curious about World War II era airplanes and I spend all of my time learning about World War II. I'm not that old. I feel like at a certain age, men sort of like get into a World War II phase and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but War history in general. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. My husband is in that era. Actually, okay. that's been his whole life. What am I saying? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> he's that guy. He loves it. <laughs> so it's perfectly great. But like if you're sacrificing time spent with your kids or sacrificing time spent exercising or time spent doing other things that are also good or more important, that can be a, a way that curiosity can be can be vicious. So like, again, like most of life, it's just a matter of balance and trade-offs. Well said. It sounds like it goes back to those filters, not formulas. And right. this was this was a great. I'm, I, I always enjoy my time with you. Thank you. It's very <laughs> kind of you. I I do as well, Meredith. Thanks so much. Tell people where they can buy your book, why it's okay to mind your own business, and otherwise, you know, just stay in tune for your next book that you're surely writing right now. <laughs> Yeah. So the new book, Why It's Okay to Mind Your Own Business is on Amazon and probably most, if not all, online booksellers. Um, I'm on Twitter. I I, I always hesitate because I'm, you know, I, I write these books on like how to behave well. And then, I, you know, I'm always afraid that someone's going to like follow me on, on Twitter, Twitter and be like, oh, this jerk. <laughs> but I am on Twitter. If someone wants to follow me for for whatever I'm working on next, that's that's the way to do it. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to whatever's next. Thanks, Meredith. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did with the same guest about virtue signaling. It's episode 136. Stay tuned next week for a remastered episode with the writer of the film, Teenage Jesus Jerk, as we discuss purity culture and cults. 